Greg, how are you? I'm okay, Justin. How are you doing? I, I don't know if we're going to find enough to talk about. It's been kind of boring these last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think we're going to struggle to come up with enough topics. Uh, the good news is the news world has been really quiet. We're kind of coasting up. There was no October surprise. No. So we'll have a nice, boring episode today. <laughs> uh, well, I want to jump right into it because uh, Greg and I are clearly being facetious if you follow any news at all. And I want to jump right into saying hello to our guest this week, Dr. Jonathan Coopersmith. Jonathan, how are you? Pretty good. Thank you for having me back. Um, but boy, the quality of some of the speakers you invite back, I got to wonder about. <laughs> <laughs> We're having these same concerns ourselves. Well, um, so. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sorry, the last time you were with us, Jonathan, we could offer you a beverage at the end. Uh, and, and this time, uh, unfortunately, you'll have to get your own beverage. I do Cheers. miss our friends at, uh, at downtown Uncorked, though. I, uh, I miss our having some wine and seeing our friends there. Um, I, I miss down, yeah, I miss downtown Uncorked enormously, just like I miss any element of social life enormously. Yeah. Man, a, a real happy hour with real live humans, not wow. on Zoom. It's like things I dream about now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or seeing people or looking at pictures pre-pandemic and thinking, oh my gosh, those people are so close together. Yeah. I do yeah. have this when I watch television shows that have been coming out recently. I'm like, why is everyone so close to one another? <laughs> space, space. Well, um, we do have a lot going on. Um, and so I'm going to jump back into it. What we're going to do this week is we have about five or six news topics um, at the beginning. It has been a crazy two weeks. So we're going to spend a little bit more time than usual, even though we have a guest kind of going through a few of the news items. And then uh, Dr. Cooper Smith has uh, written a couple of articles recently on voting and how we do voting in the U.S. and some of the challenges. And uh, you'll get to learn if there are millions and millions and millions and millions of mass voter fraud. So stay with us to the end to find out if we have widespread voter fraud in the U.S. in case you're curious. All right. So with that in mind, uh, we'll just jump right into it. I have these loosely sort of in chronological order, although you'll see pretty quickly I botched the chronological order. Yeah. But yeah, Greg's agreeing with me. <laughs> So last uh, Tuesday, right? Last Tuesday? Last a week ago today. Holy cow, it was a week ago today. We had our first presidential debate of the season. And um, if you've been living under a rock somewhere, maybe you missed it. But this was universally panned <laughs> by uh, viewers. Um, there's some lots of interesting th things that happened. I watched it uh, live as well. So I have some commentary on it. But Greg... I mean, how did this compare? You've seen a few more debates than uh, this young whippersnapper. So uh, what'd you think? Well, you know, we, we hear that uh, Lincoln interrupted Douglas all the time back in 1858. Uh, <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, having watched presidential debates since 1976, uh, this was a, a very unusual one. Uh, the president displayed uh, uh, impressive lack of self-control. Uh, he was clearly loaded for bear and uh, wasn't going to let the rules or the moderator or common sense or good manners uh, keep him from keeping Joe Biden from being able to put a couple of sentences together. 
it, it was it, it, it was a very embarrassing performance. Uh, I I read a comment in the Financial Times from what one of the writers saying, you know, the Chinese, you know, for Chinese propaganda purposes, there's, you know, they could find nothing better than just, um, you know, taping and re and replaying that debate world, 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 worldwide as a symbol of American decline. Yeah. And, um, and I don't even know if it was, if it was wise tactically for Trump. I, I thought Biden, you know, did okay, but he's an old man and he looked old in, in that debate. Uh, and I think if Which one Trump, or both? Well, Trump. I thought, I thought yeah. Biden looked older than Trump. Uh, and I, I, I just think that if Trump had just let Biden talk, Biden might not have come off as well. And, and he certainly wouldn't have come off as sympathetically with Trump constantly interrupting him and, and, and yelling at him about his, about his children and all that. I, I, I think that, and certainly the, the, the post debate polls bear out the fact that, uh, this, his behavior didn't help the president at all. Yeah. I, um, I decided to treat it like a game day. You know, we don't get to have game days. And uh, this is getting close to our version of the World Series. I have been watching some baseball playoffs or listening to them, which has been kind of fun. My Atlanta Braves have made it to the division series. They won a playoff series for the first time in almost 20 years. Um, so I, I uh, tried to Zoom with a couple friends, got it up on our screen here, had a drink or two beforehand. And um, it made me sick. I mean, it just made me ill watching this, the level of dialogue and there's a lot of reasons that we've talked about why the level of dialogue in the U.S. is is struggling. Part of this is our forums. Part of this is uh, there's a whole lot of reasons. But watching the president of the United States engage in what's supposed to be a discussion with his opponent, no wonder Americans are having such a hard time talking together because it's just it was just madness, uh, just interrupting and yelling and going after Joe Biden's children. Um, but the piece about it that I found most frustrating, I guess, and most kind of inappropriate from the president was, again, the all these claims of vast, vast, vast voter fraud, that our election system's a shambles, that you can't trust it, and, you know, giving away a little bit of the lead coming later. This is just not the case. We Our elections have some challenges and have some ways to improve, as we're going to talk about. But mass, mass voter fraud has not been something... Um, that has happened in the U.S. in modern times. Um, and so I find this continuing a, attack of trying to delegitimize democratic norms, but voting as just really egregious behavior. Yeah, it's not good for democracy. Right. And, 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 you know, it's not good when you democracy. think about it, uh, former Vice President Biden referred to the President of the United States as a liar and a clown and told him to sh shut up. And he was the well-behaved one at the debate. He was not, he was not spitting and gesticulating. And um, at, the, at that time, it was a fairly mild-mannered, you're, you're a, a clown. And uh, certainly, he was more than provoked. And I, I think he was fairly accurate in saying that the president was a, was a liar and uh, quite quite possibly a clown too. Uh, unfortunately, 
it, this was not a circus. This was supposed to be a debate to educate, to inform the American people and as a demonstration of American democracy. Um, and um, at least one of the participants was taking it seriously. The other, well, you know, when you have, well, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. It, but I think we have to go there later. Yeah, no, I, um, I think there's a, a, a lot of evidence coming out that the, the president didn't, and his, his uh, staff and his family didn't take basic kind of COVID restrictions seriously, didn't, showed up late, uh, was very, were very disrespectful of the process, um, you know, didn't treat it like any attempt other than to get sound bites and yell uh, uh, over Joe Biden. And I, you know, it was, I think it was embarrassing as an American. But we should, we should plot on, uh, I've cleverly titled this SCOTUS the super spreader for those of you listening and not watching. Um, and why am I calling this SCOTUS the super spreader? Well, if you've missed the news, there was an, a, an, a celebration event nominating uh, the a potential Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And at this event, it was out in the Rose Garden, lots of people sitting close to one another, essentially no masks throughout the crowd, including a university president who's gotten uh, some pushback from his behavior uh, in being part of this um, and then it turns out, we find out a couple days later that um, the president of the United States has COVID and none of the, uh, and several of the people at the event, I think maybe eight or nine now, have uh, tested for positive, tested positive for COVID-19, including Chris Christie, Kellyanne Conway, uh, a couple of prominent Republican senators um, and several others. And so they're calling this event a super spreader event because no one was wearing masks. It was a fairly large gathering and several people close to the president have, uh, have tested positive. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of dark stuff going on here. But I have to say that at some point you can only go so far in your ridiculous behavior before you kind of, before it kind of bites you in the butt. <laughs> I mean, they were just continually flaunting and flaunting and flaunting, social distancing, mask wearing, kind of parading around as if they were immune to this. And then it turns out that not only the president gets it, but large amount of his inner circle and potentially the attorney general, all from just complete reckless and careless behavior. Um, and um, so let's start there. And then I'd like to talk about a little bit uh, of how the White House has handled the president's stay in the hospital. Greg? What can you say? I mean, I tried <laughs> this, you know, what's in front of us, you know, as, as Jonathan said, who are you going to believe me or your, your lion eyes or we've rules seen, are for little people. Yeah. We've rules seen are for the little people. The president. Yeah. We've seen the president basically ignore the public health advice of his own administration on numerous occasions. We saw it dramatically when he accepted the Republican nomination in the grounds of the White House in front of a tightly packed crowd that maybe 10, maybe 20% were wearing masks. Most were not. Uh, and then we saw it at, at uh, the Judge Barrett's announcement. And it's just irresponsible behavior. Uh, and, and it's part of this 
really, really unfortunate decision by the president to make mask wearing a, a, a culture war issue. Instead of getting behind that, instead of at the beginning of this, telling people to wear their masks, his own, his own head of the CDC just last week in, in congressional testimony held up a, a face mask and said, this is the most important thing that we can do right now to reduce the number of cases and limit the spread of this disease. And the president just rejects that advice. It's, it's sad. The, it's clear that the, the White House excuse, which is we're constantly tested, the testing regime at the White House didn't work. And, and the fact that you're, you know, before you're symptomatic, before you test positive, you are uh, liable to uh, uh, be able to spread the virus was not something that, that they kept into consideration. So it, it's just yet another failure. It's, it's depressing. And it, and it endangered the president of the United States, who is, well, as we know, a person who has a, a number of comorbidities, including his age and his weight, uh, and, and well, we'll get into the hospital in a bit. But he's also endangering the people around him who are, you know, at, you know, you know the serving people, the folks who are you know, the secretary in, in particular, you know, the Secret Service agents, including the ones he took on that uh, on that road tour on on uh, on once on, on, on Sunday. I mean, that was um, that was reckless endangerment of of three agents whose duty, you know, whose job is to take a bullet to protect the, the president, not to have the president pose a threat to them. Um, yeah, I mean, he's and like I said he has he has politicized this. He's made it a bit of a culture war. And the saddest aspect of that is that people are going to die as a result. Um, and that's one of the reasons the U.S. what we've we've had over almost over I think it's two hundred and ten thousand known deaths from COVID here. Mm -hmm. um, you know what four percent of the world's population, twenty percent of the of the world's deaths. I mean that that is yes that is um, that is not a type of leadership that we want. Yeah. Uh, so Justin, do you want to argue this point? <laughs> uh, no, I do not. Um, I do not want to argue it. I uh, I find um, I find the behavior similarly as you gentlemen. Um, it's 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 beyond reckless. Um, and you know the 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 signs that the president just doesn't get it. Even kind of doing the photo op. Some of the tweets that have come out in the last kind of forty eight hours. It just. It's really frustrating. He doesn't seem to take the office seriously still. After all this time, all the dead Americans, all the failed governance, nothing can be convinced to take him serious, to, for him to take it seriously and think about the American public rather than what makes him look good in the moment. What do you think? Photo up are just kind of uh, brilliant examples of it from the church um, when we were having some uh, protests then to now riding around to do a, a show and then to stand on the White House balcony saluting people like what what is this I mean it's just not it's not how we traditionally how we like our president to behave and to take and to publicly take your mask off in a clear display of 
I don't need this. When you are, when you are, you know, a viral load, when you, when you are Infectious. going to infect people, uh, I, I just, it, it, it's mind boggling. Um, it could have been worse. He could have really emulated Vladimir Putin and taken off his shirt too. <laughs> so be grateful for small favors. Yeah, but this no, no it this, it is yeah. It's, this proclivity for the balcony is also just as a symbol, kind of disturbing. It's you know the the the, the dear leader, you know Il Duce standing on the balcony, jutting out his jaw. Uh, it's yep. just not a picture you want of an American president. It's not part of a democracy. Uh, one of the other things about this to kind of hone in on that I wanted to talk about for a minute uh, before we move to kind of the president's first policy uh, uh, change, I guess, as he has come out of the hospital, is this whole timeline was also a bit bizarre. And as several... Kind of journalists have pointed to this was watching a cover up in real time was I think the way it was described um, and like how do you even cover it when you see it the cover up playing out in real time so we still don't have good information on what the president's health was leading up to his hospitalization what was going on with the hospitalization why he's been let out already there's the White House from early on has been taking this weird like to to the examples we were using, kind of Superman, supreme leader approach, like, of course he's not sick and of course he's fine and how could this affect him? And you can see him in the videos struggling to breathe. It's clearly seriously affecting him um, and left the office, left the hospital against, from what I can tell, the advice of the public health professionals and uh, endangering his own life and others, as we've, as we've mentioned, and kind of just the blatant... Kind of put blatant, kind of trying to cover this uh, the timeline up as it was unfolding. Um, you know, it's it remains unsurprising this administration tries to cover things up. They do that systematically. They lie systematically. But this is just a whole other thing on display. It hurts the you know reputation of Walter Reed. It hurts the reputation of the physicians involved, and it makes the the shambles of everything while real while Americans out in the real world are dying still by the thousands of this and he's treating it like it's no big deal. Okay, back to you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, I mean, watching the cover up unravel within seconds just makes you wonder, you know, this really is the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, they, they, they you, you have a, a doctor who goes out to brief the press and and basically lies because he later says he wanted his patient to you know feel good and then the chief of staff of the white house who thinks he's off camera immediately goes to the press to to contradict the doctor's uh, uh portrayal of the medical situation uh says he's says he's doing it on background but is on camera while he's doing it uh you would think that the, the doctor and the chief of staff would have spoken before and gotten on the same page. Well, I, I don't know. And normally you would expect the chief of staff to be saying things are going well and the doctor 
who has a professional reputation and should know what he's talking about, I uh, should say, well, not not quite. And in in fairness, um, presidents and health issues, there's been a long history of concealing from the American people. Oh, the president, you know, Eisenhower having a really serious heart heart attack, or you know, so it's you know, this is not the first president to lie about his health. Um, and by the way, you still have that unexplained trip to Walter Reed, you know, over the summer. Oh, he wanted to get his uh, physical, uh, you know, just out of the way. So we we went there in the evening, um, which, hey, it's a nice summer evening. I think I'll get part of my physical. Thing. Um, uh, and uh, but but you're right. I, I mean, I think one of the aspects, defining aspects of the Trump presidency, which bodes well, or one of the reasons um, the country has resisted so much of his autocratic behavior as well as possible is because they, you know, they, they shoot first and ask questions later, or they, you know, they sue first or sign pieces of paper and then realize that, oh, there are laws that we have to follow so far. Yeah, there, um, it, it really is the, the, the bunch that says ready, fire, aim. Yeah. Um, so which makes you, you know, wonder or worry what happens if you had somebody who was really smart uh, with autocratic tendencies and had and had a political part, had cowed a political party to his will. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the what's uh, mitigated the effects of the Trump administration on the country is that the president is not bright and he is lazy. Um, tactically, tactically smart, but definitely lazy. And I think has a very short time span too. that TV show mentality. Um, and people have said before, he says, let's take each day like it's a TV show. What's on? How do we get good, good, good ratings today? Um, well, I, uh, there was a, a couple of new stories coming out today and we kind of called our listeners up over no large swath of the topics of the last two weeks, but the large topics that we've been dealing with here in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that was uh, kind of continuing on as this has been uh, unfolding is discussions of, among the con uh, congressional Democrats, with the Secretary of Treasury, and others to try to pass another relief bill for the American public. And uh, the House and GOP had different competing versions of what this should look like. Um, and there was some negotiation process going. Also today, the chairman of the Federal Reserve was pleading with Congress essentially to do more, that we not to worry about overspending here. Um, and the president tweeted out today that he was informing um, Mitch McConnell and the uh, Republican leadership to withdraw from these negotiations and to focus exclusively on getting their Supreme Court nominee uh, approved before the election, before power can change, and quit worrying about the American public and their relief plan. Um, so that came out today, which again, this seems like another thing that I'm just not sure it comes across well, if that's even the goal to make it come across well. Um, people are hurting all over the country the, the round of stimulus from earlier in the year 
is not something people still have access to. Gov uh, companies are starting to cut back as some of the um, PPP stuff is uh, money's going away. So it's actually a time at which economists and the Federal Reserve and uh, serious observers seem to suggest that we need another infusion into the American economy to make sure it stays stable, make sure it continues to have some sources of demand as we continue to battle COVID. But the president just walks away because the most important thing is what? Getting the Supreme Court justice moved through. Uh, so uh, I was just, this, this was unfolding today. Um, and uh, Greg, I was hoping to get your take. It, the interesting thing about this is that the president's contradicting himself. He was the one who a couple of weeks ago basically said to Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans who were holding things up, right? Uh, because they, their, their kind of uh, first offer on these negotiations with the House was a, a bill that was less than a trillion dollars. The House came in at uh, three trillion. Uh, and uh, the president's own secretary of the treasury wanted to get something done. Uh, the president basically indicated uh, that he wanted the Republicans in the Senate to negotiate seriously. And he sent his treasury secretary to negotiate with the Speaker of the House. That was an indication that the president wanted some kind of movement on, on a second relief bill uh, before the election. And that seemed very sensible from a political point of view. Uh, I agree with you on the, on the public policy element of it, but you know, other people might disagree. And, principled conservatives in the Senate don't like spending money. Uh, they like tax cuts, but they don't like spending money. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that's, that's fine. One can have that debate, but what's the president thinking? I mean, after encouraging some kind of compromise to get a relief bill, now saying he doesn't want one. Well, why? Uh, it can't be because of Judge Barrett's confirmation. Judge Barrett's confirmation is gonna happen, right? It's gonna happen. If it doesn't happen before the election, it'll happen in the lame duck. Uh, I, I think Mitch McConnell is gonna see to that. You know, the fact that these uh, senators have tested positive, they're gonna run the, the Judiciary Committee hearings on Zoom. And, and will they be able to get in a vote before election day? I guess a lot will depend on the, you know, how many more senators uh, fall victim and won't be able to come to the, to the Senate floor to vote. But it'll happen afterwards. I, I, I just don't see anything that can stop it. But I just don't understand the president's uh, reversal on the, on the, which seems to me to be more important to him politically, tactically, in the short term, to be able to say to the American people who, who are suffering economically as well as uh, in, in many cases physically, we're doing something for you. And he, he just, basically kicked it. That was, this is the last chance before the election and he kicked it. Jonathan, anything you want to add here? Um, if anything, he probably helped some of the moderate House Democrats who have been pushing for something and saying, even if it's not what it should be, and now you can say, now they can go back to their constituents and say, Look, we tried, which is what they had to. By the way, the the House passed a bigger stimulus bill in May. That big bill, the Senate Republicans waited until September, August before responding. So, no, like you said, there is a a legitimate, you know, debate about the size of the stimulus. But um, 
you know, now they can say, look, we tried, but the Republican president of the United States basically said, let the meat cake or let me, you know, um, getting my conservative Supreme Court justice is more important than which, like you said, is going to happen any, anyway, um, than helping the American people. But uh, I mean, it's 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 sad. it's a sad day for the U.S. economy for for 300 million Americans, and it's a I think it was just a, from what and all I know is what you you you've said. It just sounds like a really odd political move, one that's really going to hurt him and probably a lot of those a lot of re, re, Republicans running for office. Um, which, by the way, might be part of Trump's strategy if he can say, you know, maybe he's thinking, let me take a bunch of my supporters down with me when I go, if mm-hmm. if that happens, because certainly they, you know, that's going to give Democrats a political boost by saying we're trying to help people. It's you know, bad day yeah. for my four hundred one k too. Uh, well, you weren't thinking of retiring anytime soon, were you? Uh, well, uh, talk to me about what you mean by soon. But, uh, you know, the market went down a, a percentage point and a half uh, Ooh. as a result okay. of the of the president's uh, declaration that uh, the negotiations on the stimulus bill were over. Wow. That's serious. Well, our final um, news for the day before jumping into more news topics, I guess, in uh, voting in elections in the U.S., Um, There was another uh, big news item today out of the House of Representatives. The House published uh, its investigation of competition in digital markets. Uh, This is a bipartisan judiciary committee. And basically, they're accusing the major tech companies, uh, which includes uh, Amazon and uh, Facebook and Google, of being monopolies and engaging in anti-competitive behavior, um, which I don't think should be a surprise to any observers at this point, but this uh, has been going on. They uh, released the findings of their report today, so I haven't read all the way through it, but there is already some division among the committee on what recommendations to to make, and this was the part that I wanted to just mention on, which is the discussion, the severe kind of consequences are around breaking up the companies, forcing them to um, not kind of pre-install or favor their their software um, or their tools um, to kind of on the other end, as I see it, at least so far, maybe just some fines um, to encourage different behavior. And the thing that I wanted to say about this as it's as it's unfolding is I think this is kind of missing the point of what kind of advantage the major tech companies have. Um, so part of the problem is them being monopolistic and the and the power that comes along with that. This is really in a, a, a digital economy problem more broadly um, in that uh, the accumulation of data, the uh, accumulation of kind of these machine learning algorithms, these things, and the social media platforms, they have economic tendencies to go towards monopolization. But what actually is allowing them to reach monopolization in part is what they can do with data. And so their ability to kind of accumulate large and large amounts of data and use it to predict outcomes is the real thing that, in my opinion, that has led to the vast accumulation of 
kind of uh, wealth and power in these companies. And it's unclear to me that trying to break them up or trying to settle them with some fines is going to really go in the direction that we need to protect people's uh, data, protect the ability to interact with these platforms, um, that just breaking them up, I don't think is really going to solve the problem here. Greg, Jonathan, anything? Jonathan, you do some tech stuff here, so maybe you have some insight. Yeah, well, a lot of it is, you know, the advantage, there are advantages of size. I had to sign into the, into uh, app be live TV. I had my choice of Google or Facebook uh, to, to sign in. And, um, you know, there was, you know, a part of that is that, is that, is that, is that smooth flow. And I, I, I think you're right. The, 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 the size itself is, is one problem, but the other is our data and what's being used about, it. and we have no real rights to it. Um, and I know that one of the uh, partial solutions being talked about is you have a right to your data and who gets who gets to use it. Um, but it, it it's interesting that seeing that this is you know the political. You know, Republicans, Democrats, you're seeing different responses, but everybody seems to agree that there is a problem mm -hmm. or a set a set of problems. And I think that that's a good thing that, that at least we you know that um, that we have to. And hopefully after the election, uh, there'll be some positive steps forward on this. But like you said, there are. Is this going to be a spiral or are we going to go in different directions trying to solve this? And you also have these challenges of national security, not just national security, but national markets. And this is where the TikTok issue comes in, um, which and the president's actions seem to be a, a true auto autocratic response of, um, you know, I tell you to break it up, break it up and not dealing with the underlying problem of TikTok, which is what do you do with the algorithms and the data? And that's not just a TikTok problem. It's a, it's a, it's a digital problem. Um, Thank heavens Faith isn't here because she's a huge <laughs> TikTok fan. But uh, so, so the EU, I don't know anything about this. You guys do. The EU has adopted much more stringent data mm -hmm. protection regulations. How are they working? So um, the... Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. No, no, go, go, go ahead. I... Yeah, so the EU has the General Data Protection Regulation, um, which gives European citizens uh, a few things, but one, the one that's talked about the most is this right to be forgotten. So that's, it's this right to have your data removed. Um, and it has some challenges. We're actually, Greg, right now I'm working with a number of our Bush School students on a paper that is, how do we improve the GDPR in a world where the machine learning tools are improving? Um, and one of our colleagues, Valerie Hudson, and I have worked with a number of scholars to respond to the EU's call for how they might go about improving the GDPR. Um, so the, the, the problem is, one of the problems is that states get to set some of their, uh, nation states get to set some of their own standards. So you see, um, you see some, attempts to house things in with states where they can get away with more. The other issue that we're seeing is enforcement. These things are hard to enforce. And so um, the enforcement uh, 
mechanisms are not as deployed as much as you would you would hope. But there have been some large, I'm not going to remember the size off the top of my head, but there have been some large fines against, um, I believe it's Google, um, for, uh, how, uh, for their Google Maps processes under kind of this GDPR framework. So um, it's kind of uh, steps in what I would say is the right direction, but still, um, still needs some improvements. The real challenge is that it, uh, large scale collecting your data is the business model. Um, and using that data to, to predict your behavior is the business model of several of the major tech companies, including Facebook and uh, Google as, and Twitter and TikTok as a few. Amazon and Microsoft's are a little bit different. They sell some, some products, um, physical products. Um, but what's going to make this challenging is that, uh, yeah, 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 uh, Apple uh, sells some things as well, um, is that this is really at the core of the, um, of their, their model. And you see some of this play out too, where actually Apple, Apple is going to, uh, is, does a better job at protecting users' privacy and it got a lot of pushback from Facebook with their new user updates that prohibit some data from being shared across apps in the way that they, they gather it to build out this profile about you. Okay. All right. Jonathan. Yes. We should get to what we were, uh, the whole, uh, whole reason for having you here is one of my main frustrations from the presidential debate. Is the shortened baseball season? season? Shortened baseball season, yeah. Um, is the attacks on the elections. And as you highlight in a couple of recent articles, one in the IEEE spectrum and one in the conversation, um, we do have some challenges with our, vote, with our voting system. Um, it's a little different than maybe people understand how it might work. And so I was hoping you might tell us a little bit about uh, how the voting system works, how it's decentralized, how the states have a little bit of... Uh, uh, leeway and how they design these systems and what that means for um, some of the challenges for American voting. Okay. Um, although you've basically given that thesis, so I'm just going to sit back and uh, <laughs> let Amazon tell me what I should order. Um, but no, the, um, you know, we have, you know, uh, we have a national election day, which by, by the way, um, there has been there have been long-standing and unsuccessful efforts to let's change if we if we want to improve voting turnout, either let's declare that day a federal holiday to allow people time to vote, or put it on a weekend where people might have time to vote as opposed to the middle of the week. Um, but um, historically, voting has been one of these background tech technologies that nobody paid that much attention to uh you know there was absentee voting you showed up you showed up to vote with the 2000 presidential election um with the snafu in florida the the voting idiocies in florida of bad ballot design and you know pregnant chads pregnant chads hang, hang, hanging chads but also the palm beach ballot where you had um you know such poor ballot design that uh, a lot about you know voters you know a lot of votes were enough votes were miscast were interpreted as miscast to swing the election to George to George to George Bush um, and what we've seen from there is sort of a weaponization 
I hate to use that word, by the way, but just um, one of the ways of winning elections is preventing people, people who would not vote for you from voting. Um, and by the way, that's been a longstanding practice, too, of, of voter suppression. We've seen that, especially in the American South, with, um, um, with uh, poll taxes, with literacy taxes, um, or, just, or just, trying, uh, just trying to vote by being Black. Or, um, but what we've, uh, but in recent year, recent decades, really, there, um, there have been trends to increase the option to vote by mail. Before or historically, if you were out of, out of country, you could vote by mail. If you were ill, you could request an absentee ballot. But about 20 years ago, Oregon started uh, shifting to, let's try to have everybody vote by mail. You know, let's mail registered ba uh, ballots to voters or Let's, register, let's mail ballots to registered voters. Um, and that way you don't have the crowds, the chaos of election day. But also it, it turns out that people, uh, there's been some evidence that people who vote by mail, more of them actually cast a vote. And the voting tends to be a bit more thoughtful because you can you know, sit in at around the table at home, talking about it with your friends or family and reading the literature as opposed to going on to the book. So there, there's been a, that trend of absentee ballot, of, um, of mail-in balloting. Five, five states now do most of their voting by mail. Um, there's no indication of fraud of wide-scale fraud. Ah, uh, there it is. Uh, buried the lead yeah. earlier, but there it is. <laughs> yeah, buried the lead earlier. Okay, all right. Okay, basic, okay. There is no large-scale voting fraud. In the same way, there is no increase of children being kidnapped from the Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian. Um, a, that's because the museum's closed to the public, but no, but also, no children have been kidnapped from the Smithsonian, but it's, it was, you know, there are a lot of rumors and a lot of tales going around. But, um, you know, what we're seeing with President Trump, and he's not the first one to do this, but efforts under the guise of protecting the integrity of the vote, let's make it as difficult as possible for people who might vote against us to vote. Um, and, um, Mail-in, okay, good mail-in balloting is safe. You know, there are security precautions with the ballots, um, and there are ways that you know, if you do it properly. Harris County, by the way, has just introduced what, um, let's have a barcode on the outside of the, uh, of, the, of the envelope. So not only the county election office, but the voter can trace where his or, his or her vote, um, vote is, or her, his or her ballot is, is going. You know, so there Lots, there are ways of doing this properly. In the same way, what, one of the other um, smaller attacks by Republicans, and, and again, I, I don't want to castigate the party, but and but you are seeing what I believe over 300 lawsuits have been filed across the country by the Democrats, generally trying to expand the right to vote, absentee or early during the pandemic, and Republicans or Republican Party trying to. Um, avoid ex um, expanding access to the vote, um, 
or to say, no, you can't have more ballot boxes to drop in the mail. I mean, it, if you think about it, it's, it's really sad that one party is trying to increase access to voting, another is trying to say, no, 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 we've got, under the guise of um, election fraud, which, 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 doesn't, which does not ex exist. Um, and the ballot boxes are just one example because uh, already before this election, about a third of uh, absentee mail-in ballots were being dropped off, you know, not mailed in, but dropped off at a county election office or in a protected ballot box, uh, you know, where you drop it off. And yeah, it's one of these big boxes, you know, it's, it's not your cardboard box that you can rip off. It's, you know, it's heavy metal. It's, you know, don't mess with me. Um, and then it's picked up. But um, what has happened this season uh, this this um, primary season, both pre-COVID, there have been election failures, the biggest one being in the Iowa Democratic Caucus, where they tried yeah, some new voting nice. software. Uh, and by the way, basic rule of any new tech technology, train your people before you, you know, to use it properly, <laughs> test it before you introduce it on a large scale. It was complete chaos. But made worse by the fact that as um, local precincts, okay, we can't use this nifty software to call, you know, to send our results and let's try calling the county office. Um, uh, American trolls, there's, you know, this is not foreign interference. This is good red-blooded patriotic Americans got the phone number of the Iowa Democratic Party office and they sent around, I, was, I think it was a, might have been 4chan or I'm not sure these things. I said, hey, let's screw the Democrat. Let's mess up the Democratic Party. Let's call and jam the phone lines, um, which is adding, adding to adding to the chaos. So, you, you know, you have technological failure and then you have act, people actively trying to mess up, mess up this, the system. Real disaster there. You had similar problems without the in Georgia and a couple other places. Um, Houston, in the primary, you had lines up to six hours long of people trying to vote. Um, and by the way, those lines tend to be more in areas with minority districts, or minority voters than Anglo voters. Um, but when, when COVID hit full scale, a lot more people turned to absentee voting and those numbers over overran the system. Uh, the post office just, yeah, we can't handle this. It didn't help that the postmaster general, uh, who, depending upon your level of conspiracy theory belief, um, either is a hard-nosed businessman who said, budget must come before delivery of the mail, or he's a major Republican donor who said, how can I slow down the mail to um, hurt mail-in mail, mail mail in voting? Um, but the post office failed to deliver lots of absentee ballots on time. And one of the challenges of absentee balloting, if you've never done it before, as part of the security measures, there are rules about what you have to do. You know, you, you usually when you do a mail-in ballot, you fill in your ballots and you put it in what's called a security ballot, a security envelope. Then usually you seal that envelope um, and you usually write your name on the, outs on the outside of it. 
and then you put that security envelope in another envelope which you which you mail in and the perp and then the ballot is delivered to the county office another aspect of elections which um, there's no single federal law each state has its own laws and then the actual elections are run out of you know hundreds or actually thousands nationwide of counties each with their own people making judgments or making making decisions um so, so it's why the hard the widespread fraud thing is just nonsense uh, it's no way to coordinate it in a systematic way across 50 states across 3100 counties no but if you're smart you just say gosh let's just aim for a couple of key you know a couple of key states and a couple of key areas but even there those are the areas that are going to be most most watched it's much easier to raise allegations of fraud and try to discredit the actual results from there than to actually do something about it. Um, the, you know, there have been a couple of attempts of you know, absentee rigging, you know, trying to rig absentee ballots. The last one of any large scale was in North Carolina by a Republican in the last election. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was so, it was, not, it was quickly noticed. In other words, any any real fraud would be noticed, um, and even the, um, the the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative policy group, has on its uh, has a website of about twelve hundred cases of voter fraud, and it says we've got twelve hundred. They don't tell you unless you read the fine print, and they go all the way back to nineteen eighty two or nineteen eighty three. Um, and they're, and they're pretty petty any stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah. Voter fraud is a bit like the, um, satanic, uh, the child abuse cases in uh, McMartin County in California a couple of decades ago. Um, it didn't exist and a lot of people's lives were ruined. Um, what has happened as a result though, of these, of these problems and these are real and the primaries did expose real problems of hundreds of thousands of first-time voters absentee voting, um, and a lot of them got it wrong. In a normal election, if you're voting in person, maybe one-third of a percent of the ballots are going to be disqualified, partly because it's easier to vote, and if you make a mistake, you can automatic, you can quickly uh, correct it while there, whereas with absentee voting, um, yeah. One, if you make a mistake, if you sign the, if you sign your security envelope in the wrong place, or you don't sign it, or in some places, oh, there's a little rip, we're gonna, we're gonna dis, disqualify you. You can have rejection rates of one percent, or this fall, six to eight percent in a, in a couple of states, and a lot of those were due to people um, waiting until the last minute, or the post office failing to deliver ballots until it was too late to really send them out. And in New York City, there's that recent case of, uh, oh, we sent 100,000 envelopes to the wrong place. Or, uh, but um, short, the, the, but what's, one of the good things about that, about these fiascos in the primary, is that people are now alert. The secretaries of state, the election officials, they all know there's a tsunami of, of problems uh, coming and they're doing their best to avert them. You know, there are places like Kentucky where you have, uh, which ran its primary in full COVID mode, um, 
but you have elected officials and election officials working together to ensure a, a good, a good, safe turnout and easy, 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 easy voting. You know what? Every uh, election official, what every uh, uh, elected official should be doing is telling people, vote as early as possible. If you can vote uh, in person early, a lot of states do that, including Texas, starting on October 13th. Um, Governor Abbott, by the way, moved that up a week from was supposed to start, I believe, the 18th. He's moved it up to the 13th, so a few extra days. Um, for his efforts there, a couple of Republican uh, um, uh, members of the House, I believe, and a, a conservative activist are suing him, trying to get him to set, uh, turn 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 that back to the to the 18th. But ideally, vote early in person. If you can't vote early in person, vote early by email, uh, by, by mail. Um, the major problem that's happened in the primaries is people waiting till it's too late to vote. And one of the reasons um, election officials are telling people don't expect a decision on election night is because of all those absentee ballots. There are some states including Oregon and Washington and Utah, Democratic and Republican states that vote by mail, where the ballots come in as soon as they arrive before election day, they're processed. They aren't counted, but they're processed, so they're ready to be counted on election day. There are a couple other states, including Pennsylvania, where the law says the election officials cannot start counting absentee ballots until election day. And what that means in a normal election year, if you've got one or two percent of the ballots that are absentee, who cares? You've got 90 percent of 80, you know, 98 percent of the vote counted already. But if you've got 10 or 20 percent of the vote that has to be count, you know, not just counted, but the envelopes opened and and when we mean, say, processed, that means is this signature valid? That is, we're trying to make sure there is no voter fraud and that takes time. And if you 10, 20 percent of the ballot, that's going to take time. What the state of Pennsylvania should be doing and its election officials have said to the state legislature, could you do this, is to give us permission to start processing the ballots ahead of time. And uh, the Republican answer from that has been no. And, and I hate to sound as if this is a Democrat versus Republican or Democratic versus Republican. It shouldn't be. You know, we should all be for fair, honest, transparent voting. And but it, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's a real it's 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 become <laughs> weaponized. And the only good thing about this, it's better to have these disputes done by done by lawyers than by President Trump's Proud Boys um, and by people with guns trying to intimidate voters at polls. And so, that, so, so Jonathan. Yeah. There's a big difference between states where you're allowed to process the, the incoming absentee ballots yes. before day and those who don't. So where where should we look for quick counts on election night where maybe the absentees will will be reported or or large numbers of them will be reported on election night? And where like Pennsylvania, should we just expect that that the actual 
ability to call that state will probably be after election. Uh, okay, Pennsylvania's Pennsylvania's one of the big ones. I'm not sure. I think Wisconsin is too. I'm not sure of that. Wisconsin, by the way, had major primary problems. Um, but uh, Florida is going to be a good state to watch. Uh, if you see, because uh, they are doing the early voting, and if you see uh, a trend one way or the, or the uh, other, you know, so I'd, I'd, I'd watch Florida. Um, the states that, are, that do some of the best voting are you know, predictable in the sense of you know which way California is going to go. You know, probably know what's going to happen in Washington and Colorado. Um, but, you know, what's also going to happen is that there's greater voter turnout this year. You know, there's going to be more people turning out. Texas, by the way, this is the first year where there's not straight party voting, which means that uh, people are going to have more decisions to make, and it's going to take them longer to just fill out to fill out the fill out the ballot. Um, I should say, by the way, that Texas is one of the states that's making it's hard that's making it's harder during a pandemic for 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 people to for people to vote. Um, however, we do have early voting, and I strongly urge everyone to vote early. Don't vote the first day early. Don't vote October 13th because people are going to say, oh, it's early voting. I'm going to go vote and avoid the crowds. Um, no, this is... Go the 14th or go the next week. So I really like. But do vote. Good. Yeah. Good. No, sorry. I, I, I hate to sound like a vote rec a broken record, but if you're going to vote, vote early. If you're going to vote absentee or mail in. And by the way, there's no difference between absentee voting and mail in voting, they're the same thing. Um, but send that request that ballot early, send it in early, because the earlier you send it in, if you're in a state that processes your ballots, if they find a problem, they can they can they can contact you um, and your vote will be the voting will go will go smoother. Um, so Jonathan took my uh, last bullet point. Um, oh, which I'm is sorry. Be done. Uh, and we, but what we wanted to get to that. We wanted to get to what kind of things uh, can be done by actual voters um, to to help with this. The one thing that I wanted to, you mentioned it, but given the severity of it and uh, and the way you highlighted it in your articles, I wanted to talk about how uh, this is. A continuation of a long history of racism in voting. It also happens to be the case that when the Republican Party is trying to suppress the vote, they're often trying to suppress the vote of minorities, of Black and Hispanic men and women. Um, and one of the things, not only to kind of make it more difficult for them to vote, but the other thing that your article highlighted is that as communities um, shift from being communities that are dominantly uh, a white to dominantly minority, the um, the average waiting time quadruples, I believe, from something like seven or eight minutes to thir thirty minutes in the in the communities where the largest proportion of minority voters are. Those also happen to be the same communities where election officials have found places to close to close polling as well. And this is all modern stuff, not to mention, of course, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of polling taxes. Um, in Florida, the, there's been efforts to allow felons who, um, in 
are disproportionately black as well vote. There's been pushback from the Republican Party to allow them to vote in Florida. So while this is, uh, while you highlighted that, unfortunately, this is a partisan issue, Democrats are often trying to expand voting uh, access while Republicans are trying to dampen it. Republicans are also, uh, are, their efforts are directed at communities of color. They're directed at Hispanic communities and black communities to be sure that it's even more difficult for them to vote. And this is something that plays out uh, uh, continuing in today of choosing which polling locations to close. And in the evidence that you provided in the article that even uh, uh, that there are fewer polling locations in the high minority areas causing their time to vote on average to be significantly higher. Um, yeah, after the, the 1965 Voting Rights Act changed a lot of that. It got rid of the poll tax, the literacy tax. Um, but the Supreme Court in uh, Shelby decision in 2013 said, oh, um, there's no need for pre-clearance. Pre, pre and Texas, by the way, is one of the states that's led the um, charge towards closing down um, voting places and increasing voter ID restrictions. By the way, if you own a concealed carry permit, that is good voter ID um, for the state of Texas, but your university ID was not. Um, that that might have changed now. Um, one minor thing going out of sex, something that you as an individual can do is contact your um, your local voting, uh, your local, your local county clerk, and say, "Do you need any poll workers?" You know, one of the problems of COVID, okay, uh, of the COVID ep epidemic, uh, is that it disproportionately affects older people, who have been the main. You know, if you've gone to a poll in the last decade or two, most of those poll workers have been of retirement age and beyond. And one of the, you know one of the reasons the Wisconsin primaries were so bollocks is that a lot of poll workers, having to choose between their health and the democratic process, said, "I'm I'm not going to go." Uh, so think of you know contact your county office you know your county election office and say, "Do you need any 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 poll workers? The training is minimal. You will help the democratic process, and if you have any control over your workplace." Uh, urge your worker, you know, urge your superiors, or if you are a superior, see if you can get them time off to vote, to go vote during the workday. Uh, the worst crowds are before the normal workday and after the workday. If, you know, what we're trying to do with voting now, by voting early, by sending in, you know, by uh, mail-in or absentee valuing, is the same thing we're trying to do with COVID. We're trying to flatten the curve. We're trying, you know, it. If we can get, you know, ten percent of the, you know, ten percent of the people to vote on election day during the workday, as opposed to at, um, be, before eight or after five, that's ten. You know, that's a smaller crowd later. That's going to reduce the chance of a of a of a crowd. And you actually do see. Uh, groups uh, and you do have some businesses saying to their workers we will give you time off to vote you know that so you don't have to maneuver around that yeah. you know some cases unpaid leave some cases paid but that's something that 
every, not just business, but offices, anytime you've got flexibility, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a Texas organization, you have people working for you, say to your, say to your staff, take an hour off to vote early, you know, to go do, do this at, at, at 2 p.m. And you'll, you'll help the democratic pro process in a, in a small way, but you get a lot of those small, you know, small ways and it adds up to it to a big assist. Jonathan, I have to say, the only thing I heard was that in a few years, I can find Greg working the local elections office in Vermont, and I'm going to go visit him so that I can watch him as he uh, he does his volunteer duty as he approaches retirement age. <laughs> Delaware. Visit him. Delaware. <laughs> Delaware. Delaware. Uh, Delaware. All those kind of northeastern Atlantic states are the same. All those small <sighs> states with one congressional representative. Mm-hmm. All of them could fit inside Texas, and we would still have Georgia and Alabama left over. You could fit them inside the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. <laughs> well, I believe we are past our hour mark. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. Um, given some My of the pleasure. things going on, I wanted to get a, an expert's view on kind of what's going on with the uh, elections and the voting process. We'll take a, a week break like we have been doing, and we'll come back to you in two weeks. Um, which will be our final episode before the big U.S. election. Uh, Professor John Shushor from the All Britain Grand uh, All Britain Center for Grand Strategy will be joining us. He is an expert, believe it or not, in presidents lying. We've had him before on the podcast. So leading up to an election and a president that likes to lie a lot, thought it'd be a good time for John uh, for John to uh, put it into perspective of. Do other presidents lie all the time, or is it kind of unique to the current president? And so we'll have that in two weeks. Then I'm going to negotiate with Greg about what we should do election night, because two weeks after that, Greg, is election night. Mm. So maybe election party night. We'll see what we have going on then. And then two weeks after that, uh, our Dean General Mark Welch has agreed to come visit with us again on on Uncorked. So uh, we'll have him visiting with us in mid-November. Vote early, but not often. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to see you guys. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Take care.